You know, the Lord brings uh, critical people, necessary people into our lives, and very often at the right moment, well, always at the right moment. And something that wasn't in the bulletin that perhaps we could have included is that one of the former pastors of this church, Pastor Bill Reed, passed away this last Sunday. And some of, the, some of us that have been here longer remember Pastor Reed. When Debbie and I started attending this church in 79, we were just dating and a couple of foolish, shy kids. And Pastor Bill loved us. He took us in. He did pre-marriage counseling. He married us and shoved us into ministry, pressed us into ministry. And I was very, very awkward and shy. That was a difficult task for him. He got my shy little wife to play the piano because she could never say no to Pastor Bill. She says no to Pastor Monty, but not. <laughs> but Pastor Bill had a special fondness for Debbie, and um, for those of you that remember him, remember him as a very caring, a loving pastor, a faithful man of the word. I'm not him. I wish that in many respects I was. But you can pray for the Reed family. His wife, Eleanor, is surviving him, and his children as well. So let's begin with prayer, if we could, please. And then we'll turn our attention to God's word. Our God in heaven, we thank you for your great redemptive love. We're grateful for the story of that love as unfolds in the gospel before us, even as we turn our attention to the, the gruesome elements of the cross. We understand how much our Savior was willing to endure, that we might be made whole, that we might find healing, we might enjoy eternal life in glory with you. So we want to express our hearts in gratitude as we open up this story, your written word, and we give our time, our attention, we give our hearts to what is before us. Grant me clarity of mind and thought as I speak, but it would be our desire that you would find us open to receive your word, to spiritually be prepared in our hearts, to learn from you, and Father, to be sanctified and transformed by that word. So we rest upon the work of your good spirit in our lives this morning. Minister to each heart as you see the need. We do pray for those that are experiencing loss, like the Reed family. Minister to them. We thank you for their testimony of faithfulness in shepherding this church for many years. And we pray, Father, that we will reap the benefits of that kind of ministry even years later. Thank you for this time that we have together in worship of you in the study of your word, and in fellowship together in Christian love. Let all things bring you honor and glory this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 19, we're starting a new chapter this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. There are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. John 19, and I will read verse 1 down through verse 12. <clears throat> John 19, verse 1, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Behold the man. 
So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. In our last study of the trial of Jesus Christ from John's Gospel, chapter 18 closed with the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, led by Caiaphas, demanding of Pilate that Jesus Christ be condemned to death. And you recall that Pilate offered them the exchange of a criminal named Barabbas in place of Jesus Christ. Now, Barabbas, as we touched on, was condemned by Rome. He was held in custody by the Roman prisons. He was found guilty of robbery and rebellion against the state and murder as well. And no doubt, he was condemned of a capital crime. He was going to be executed. And it is my presumption that he belonged on that middle cross. And I only presume that because the word of God never opens that up to us about Barabbas. But I also believe that Barabbas is a picture of every one of us that are believers that have been saved by grace. Guilty of great sins and rebellion before God. Jesus removed that man from that middle cross and placed himself there. Remember Barabbas, the name itself means son of father, son of an earthly father where Christ is the Son of God himself, the Heavenly Father. Jesus took Barabbas' place. And it was by no accident that I believe that exchange took place because, again, I believe it is a picture of us, that Jesus Christ took our place. And I only speculate, but I do believe that middle cross position belonged to Barabbas, who pictured us. Christ took our place there on the cross. And here in this part of John's record of the trial of Christ, before the Roman governor, before Pilate, he's being tormented, he's being ridiculed, but Pilate in the midst of that makes a proclamation as he presents this beaten man to the Jews with the hope that the Jews would be okay with what he's done. Behold the man. And that's going to be our objective this morning as well. Again, this is a narrative. It's telling us the story of the prosecution of an innocent man, the Son of God. And sometimes it's difficult to draw applications out of these kind of narratives, but we're going to be looking at Jesus Christ throughout this study and again draw some application from our view of Christ as John gives it to us. There are three emphases that I'd like to develop by way of headings this morning, beginning with the contempt shown to the one who deserves all glory. 
And second, the misplaced and distorted fear or cowardice that was exhibited against the Lord, particularly in Pilate. And then finally, the exercise of authority to condemn Jesus, though there was no guilt found in him. Now, there are other parts in this story this morning that we see from the soldiers and some from the Jews. But predominantly, this particular part of John's account features Pilate and it features Jesus Christ. We're going to begin this morning as Pilate faces off in the first five verses with Jesus Christ in the hopes that he can appease the Jews. And we see in these first five verses that it exposes the dishonor, the disgrace, the contempt that was shown to God's Son by the Gentiles who were examining Christ, putting him on trial. And also we see a bit from the Jews who also had examined Christ and shown contempt to him as well. And having heard from the Jews, they wanted Jesus to be condemned, Barabbas to be set free. Pilate scourges Jesus Christ. He whips him. And this was done to a man that Pilate knew and declared already to have no guilt. Pilate punished a man he knew to be innocent. And even though he was making a show of seeking some sense of justice by declaring Jesus not guilty, in this part of the trial we can see that Pilate was not all that concerned with justice. It is not just to beat an innocent man. Now historians tell us that there are three types of of scourging that Rome would use, starting from a milder form, which was vicious enough, and working up to a way that, or a level that was extremely harsh and difficult. And what we see in this is the hypocrisy of, of Pilate. But we also see exposed the motive of the heart, the motive of the heart, not only in the Jews, but in this cowardly governor that we've come to know as historically cowardly, as Pilate. I was, um, because I do some visiting and we're in a difficult time in this visitation, uh, pastors are going to have to be exposed to a lot of people, so I've taken a lot of those antigen tests, you know, the swabbing things. Well, the stores have been recently out of those, so I had to go to Amazon, as we so often do, because they have everything. And I got one in the mail, and in the fine print... It says at the bottom of the package, made in where? China, of all places. The ones that delivered this virus to us, they're now making money off of, apparently, which I find very interesting. I don't know the motive that's going on over there in all of this um, suspicion on conspiracy with this virus and so forth. But is it not interesting that they're now profiting greatly, no doubt, from this virus? at least in a certain sense. Here is Pilate, a man that has corrupt motives on his heart, given to fear, given to cowardice. You see him riding the middle of the fence, trying to get his own way, try to protect himself, trying to keep his own position of prosperity. And at the same time, he's exhibiting great injustice towards a man that he knows is innocent. And having declared him guilty or guiltless, 
He then scourges Jesus as if he is guilty. Now, this first scourging, and I believe that there are two of them, two episodes. As you look at the other Gospels, it appears that Jesus is scourged again after Jesus is condemned to die. The scourging that we see here in Roman, uh, John 19, verse 1, is prior to that declaration or that condemnation. Pilate is still examining him. He hasn't declared him guilty. If anything, he said he's not guilty. And yet he scourges him. And it appears that this first scourging is a milder form because it uses in the Greek language the wording for that milder form of scourging. And even at that, it was severe. The, the typical whip that was used is a handle that had these thongs or these straps of leather. And woven into these straps of leather were bone or metal, apparently. And the idea in the whipping is not just to find scratches on the body, but it was actually to gouge out layers of flesh. And very often, the organs would be revealed in this. And typically, in a scourging like this, the Roman soldiers would strip the victim naked, They would bind him to a post, and they would begin lashing out with this whip. And the soldiers would have to take turns because they would wear out, and they wanted to keep the lashing vigorous and strong. And though this may have been the milder form of scourging, it was still terrible. It was vicious form of punishment, especially being done to an innocent man. But the abuse was not limited to physical and inhumane torture here. As John records, the soldiers assigned to Jesus a twisted thorny crown and was pressed upon his head. And they made uh, this crown appear to be something of royalty because they've been crying out, Hail, King of the Jews, they put a purple robe on him. What we're witnessing here is not just physical torment, but they are mocking Jesus in their disbelief. Striking him on the face. Mark adds in his account, they kept beating the Lord's head with reeds spitting on him, kneeling and bowing before him to give pretense to worship. Almost pleased with himself for taking these measures to appease the Jews, Pilate then comes out to the Jews, who we assume are still gathered in Pilate's courtyard. And he tells the Jews that he's bringing them out, beaten, properly humiliated, because he recognized him as a man with no guilt. He's an innocent man. So again, we see the hypocrisy here. We see the the motive of his heart is not justice. Jesus is then led out for the Jews to behold. Crown of thorns on him, wearing the purple robe. And this is where Pilate declares, behold the man. And in making this proclamation, Pilate was inviting the Jews to look at his handiwork. They would see Jesus suitably mocked as the king. And the Jews were rejecting and despising him as that king. They would see Jesus bloody and beaten with Pilate hoping that that punishment would appease the Jews. Even though he declared again, this man is innocent. So we see a perfect example again of somebody wanting to ride the fence, appeasing, trying to appease anyway, the hatred of the Jews while maintaining a sense of justice towards an innocent man. And Pilate did neither. He did not appease the Jews. Nor did he show justice in his punishment of this innocent man. If anything, he was disgracing the true son of God. Now from this, we're going to take a glimpse at Christ here ourselves. We're going to behold the man. 
And what I hope we see from this is the shame of sin. We learn a lesson about the awfulness of our sin in the eyes of God from what we are witnessing here. And we might ask, why all the torture? Why the shame? Why the abuse? Jacob hinted at that this morning when he opened our worship in music. It was a gruesome scene there at the cross. And it's not just as Jesus was hanging on the cross. We haven't even made it there yet. And I recognize the greater abuse is yet to come. The greater suffering for Christ is yet to come when he would hang on the cross. He would take the defilement of our sin and God would judge him for it. But we're not even there yet. Why is this necessary? Why is this humiliation, this shame, this mocking, this beating, why is it all necessary? I want to turn your attention to Isaiah 53. We're going to look at a couple of passages in Isaiah. We have read this passage, in fact, every Good Friday service, we read Isaiah 53. It is the prophecy of what the Messiah must must endure on behalf of our salvation. But in Isaiah 53 and verse 5, this is rather an interesting declaration. It says, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening, now you get a picture of the scourging. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Do you see what it's saying here? It's not even describing the cross yet. The scourging, the abuse, the mockery, the, the foul treatment, the torture of Christ, it's all part of what was required for our salvation. Yes, he must hang on the cross. And it says in Scripture that the wages of sin is what? Death. Jesus had to die and make payment for our sins. But why all this other stuff? Well, according to the prophecy, according to the providence of God, the suffering, even before he's nailed to the cross, is part of our salvation. And again, we know the greater suffering is yet to come. And oftentimes in our Christian circles, we will make that comment because after all, the suffering of Christ before he ever hung on the cross are the kinds of pains that other men have had to endure. Other people have been tortured like this. Other people have been or had to experience this kind of inhumane treatment. But this abuse and shame was obtained and part of was required for our redemption. It's what the word of God tells us. And while it's true that many have suffered physical shame and even more than Christ has suffered here, none were so undeserving as the Son of God. What this gives to us is a picture of how God views our sin. Just how offended is God because of our sin? We're not going to get that picture unless the perfect guiltless and innocent son of God suffers in this way. And we know that because Isaiah tells us the word of God describes this kind of scourging and abuse as part of our healing. It was required by God himself somewhere in the mystery of the Godhead. This kind of torture and suffering and abuse and humiliation was required that we might be healed for our well-being. 
in God's redemptive plan to rescue us, his son did not simply die for our sins. He suffered and died for our sins. And if Jesus did not endure this horrid, shameful treatment, would we see our sins as severely as God does? Would we understand just what price was necessary to deliver us from judgment and suffering that we deserve for our sins? And just knowing this, does it not inspire you to loathe your sin all the more? One of the things we were sharing in our small group, and I realize as I'm getting older, is I tend to look inwardly more. And I like less and less what I see. I don't know if the rest of you feel that way as you get older. You're far more aware of your sins. We just attended a memorial service for another pastor of mine when I was a teenager. This was over at Emmanuel Baptist Church, and I know some of you were there as well. He was my pastor when I was a teenager. And during the whole service, you get a picture of a very faithful man of God, and he was. But what if at memorial services we told the whole story? We told about what we really are. What if Monty was opened up for everybody to see all my thoughts, all my wicked intentions, tell the true story about Pastor Monty? It wouldn't be so glorious a memorial service, at least for me, but would we not see the glory of the cross that such a despicable person was represented there by such a good and faithful Savior? Friends, we're not going to understand just how foul our sins are until we take in the bloody, messy, gruesome story of the cross of Christ. Because every part of his scourging, every part of the spitting and the hitting, the tearing out of the beard, as we're going to see in just a moment, it was part of God's predetermined plan for his son to endure so that we might be healed. It is for our well-being. Returning to John 19, we see also the ethical cowardice that is displayed here in the the foul treatment of Christ. Verse 6 to 8, the Jews respond to Pilate's foolish attempt to appease their hatred for the Lord. And after Pilate had had abused and beaten Jesus, mocking him, dressing him with with the royal robe and the thorny crown, He announces to the Jews, behold the man. Now, no doubt, Pilate is expecting at this point the approval of the Jews and hopefully their acceptance that this punishment is sufficient. That the Jewish chief priests and officers, they look at Jesus, they actually behold him, and they say what? Crucify, crucify. They have no interest in a little beating or a superficial mockery, at least as they saw those things. They would only be satisfied with Jesus nailed to a cross and slowly dying for all to see. And Pilate is clearly frustrated by this. After all, he went to all the effort to take an innocent man and abuse him, drag him back out in a mocking way, presenting him in his royalty, and said, take a look. Look at my handiwork. Look at what I've done for you. But they were not willing to settle for a beaten Jesus. They wanted a Jesus that was nailed to a cross and slowly dying in the most disgraceful way because that's what the Roman cross was intended to do. So Pilate tells the Jews, you take Jesus. You crucify him yourselves. Again, reminding them 
I have found no guilt in this man. Now, whether or not uh, Pilate was serious about the Jews taking him up on that offer or not, we are not told. Was he here giving permission for the Jews to take over and actually crucify Christ? Or was Pilate speaking in frustration over these whining Jews, knowing that they needed to conduct the examination through him? you got to come to me. Go ahead, you crucify me if you think you can. Well, I believe it's highly unlikely that Pilate would allow the Jews to crucify Jesus. So it was a dead offer. He had a point behind this. He was frustrated. But whichever the case, Pilate was clearly annoyed that these Jews were not pacified at this point. So he's trying to maintain a slim pretense at Roman justice. So I see the challenge in verse 6 is a weak protest from Pilate at their demand for crucifixion. But the Jews were not prepared to back down. So they shared more from their own laws that Jesus must die because he's made himself out to be the Son of God. Now this was in reference to a previous statement that Jesus had made as he stood before the Sanhedrin before the Jews brought him to Pilate. And remember, in their frustration, they finally came out and said, tell us now, just be open and honest. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus said what? Yes, I am. That constituted, in their minds, an act of blasphemy because they rejected the claim of Christ's divinity. And if you go back to Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 16, you'll see that those who blaspheme the name of God were to be put to death. So the Jews at that point felt that they were on good ground with the law of Moses to have Jesus executed. And while Pilate was not at all interested in the truth of Jesus Christ, the very thought that Jesus may be a son of a God terrified him. It says he was even more afraid which tells us that before that statement was made, Pilate was afraid, afraid of the Jews, no doubt afraid of his Roman superiors. He was in a tough fix, and he was a cowardly man. Now he's even more afraid, again, exposing his cowardice. And that fear would have been quite natural for Romans who believed in many gods and sons of God. And their pluralistic religious way of thinking it was very possible that this man was a son of a god. So you can, you can almost picture the wave of panic that has come over Pilate. He saw Jesus as an innocent man. He declared him to be innocent. His wife had come to him and said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I had a terrible nightmare about him just last night. And now Pilate had just ordered this possible son of God to be beaten And mocked, and thinking himself to be rather clever, he hauls this beaten man out for the Jews to say, Behold, take a look at what I've done. And then the Jews come back and say, Well, he's declared himself to be a son of God. You can see the panic that's come over him. What Pilate lacked was moral courage, or the courage to do what was right to an innocent man. He's consumed by fears, fear of the Jews, fear of his Roman superiors, and now terrified that Jesus might be related to one of the gods. So Pilate tried to compromise, and he failed. And now he's frightened all the more. 
And what Pilate was faced with was a monumental moral decision, yet fear kept him back from doing what was right. Afraid of the Jews, afraid of the Roman, afraid of the gods. More to the point, Pilate's contest was between fear of man and the fear of God himself. And in verse 38, he had already dismissed of chapter 18, verse 38 of chapter 18, he had already dismissed any fear of God. He had rejected the truth of Jesus Christ. And without the fear of God, Pilate was left in turmoil. And in the end, he joined the Jews in committing the greatest act of treason against God in human history. Now again, we take a moment and we want to look at this scene. We want to, in fact, look at Christ himself. And we look at the stand of courage that Jesus is showing us in the face of a man that was cowardly, consumed with fears. And without a doubt, most every one of us as believers here have been faced with a similar contest, though not exactly the same, as Pilate. We know the ethical laws, the laws of righteousness of Christ as believers. And yet many times in our life have we not been tempted to ignore those out of an unwarranted fear of man perhaps afraid of suffering financially or or losing a friendship or being thought poorly of, losing a relationship with a family member, or maybe at risk of losing a job or a position at work, fear of ridicule, fear of rejection, maybe even the fear of missing out what the lust of our heart wants, and so we compromise. But what about the man? What about Jesus? What about this one that the Jews were to behold? What can be said of Christ in experiencing this humiliation and torture? Jesus knew the price he would have to pay the moment the Sanhedrin asked him, Are you the Son of God? At that moment, he could have chosen to say nothing. But he knew what saying, Yes, I am the Son of God, he knew what that would accomplish. He knew where it would take him. Jesus had far more to lose in making that claim than did Pilate or the Jews. He could have refused to answer his interrogators on that point. But this is the moment that Christ came to this earth to fulfill. His open proclamation of his divine sonship and his messiahship would bring down the torment and the abuse of both Jew and Gentile. We read this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2. Christ, even in his suffering, is the example that we are to follow. I want you to turn to Isaiah 50, because we give a very, we're given a very graphic, prophetic picture, again, of Messiah. And the posture of Messiah in the face of this kind of torment. Isaiah 50, begin at verse 5 with me. The Lord God has opened my ear. This is Messiah talking. We say this is Jesus speaking. The Lord God has opened Christ's ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed." Jesus stood before the injustices of men. He was committed to be obedient to the will of God. When it says, the Lord has opened my ears, 
It's Jesus being attentive to the Father. And he says, I was not disobedient. I heard the call of God. I knew what was required for redemption. And I did not turn back. So Jesus walked straight into the hostilities of men who were indifferent to him like Pilate or to those who hated him like the Jews. He would not call out a word to command his legions of angels to come out and wipe out these wicked men. Or like he did in the garden, to speak forth, I am, and to see his tormentors fall to the ground. Jesus was there in the hand of Pilate under the calling of his Father in heaven. And Jesus would not be disobedient to that call. Nor did he cover his face, lift up his arms to shield himself from the blows or from the spitting. Because God strengthened his son to endure the shaming of men, Jesus stood determined to receive all that God had appointed for his son. And it says that his face was set like flint, stone-faced. Jesus was not going to withdraw or retreat from his determination to be abused. And equally as amazing that we read in these verses, God's Messiah refused to be disgraced or even ashamed of what he was enduring. Though men would do their best to put Jesus to shame, he was so confident in God's help, he was so confident in God's purposes that he would not give way to shame or disgrace in the humiliation brought against him. The salvation of God's people was being accomplished here. What a lesson of courage and determination this provides for God's people. Jesus has warned his people of the hatred that we're going to experience in the world, the hatred that he also experienced. But the purposes of God for his son were so essential, so compelling, and so rich with the glory of God that not even this treatment would bring disgrace to Christ. He felt, he felt no shame. There he is being beaten, smacked, spit on, stripped naked, and eventually nailed to a cross for everybody to look at. And they would walk by and ridicule Christ. And he felt no shame. He was not disgraced by this. Why? Because he knew that God was his help. And he was fulfilling the very purposes that God had given. And the riches of that glory were far more important to him than the threats or the humiliation of men. Do you see the lesson for us to to follow in the example? As we take in and we behold the man... Now, Pilate was nothing like that. Given to fears, and here we see the Savior, face set like flint, refusing to be disgraced because of the glory, the riches of this thing that God had given him to do. When we value the purposes of God as we should, the disgrace of the world will simply not compare. And we think again, how many times have we given way to the fears of men when we should have been fearing our God? How many times have we given way to the temptation of pressures against us, or even again the lusts of our own heart, to be persuaded to join in with the world and do what they do? Now we look to the Savior, and what we find is the encouragement that we need to follow his example. This is what he did for us. What has he called us to do for him? Again, returning to our text, 
verse 9 through verse 12, at least the first part of verse 12, we see the authorized condemnation as, as Pilate and Jesus talk about authority here. What all this led up to, for Pilate anyway, was to return back with Jesus, taking Jesus back into the praetorium and demand to know where Jesus is from. The Jews had just said, he claims to be the son of God. Pilate is consumed with fear. So he takes Jesus, goes back into his residence, and he demands an answer from Jesus. Tell me where you are from. Mount Olympus or whatever. But Jesus refuses to answer here. And there are any number of reasons that Jesus chose not to answer Pilate when he had answered the questions of Pilate on other occasions. But it is my view that Jesus was very aware of Pilate's growing fear, not only of the Jews, but now also of the gods of the Romans. And if Jesus were to answer in a way that affirmed he was the true son of the only true God, Pilate would have feared perhaps even more and maybe ended the trial. Pilate had already shown himself to be a coward. And if Jesus added greater concern to his superstitious fears, is it possible, at least from our perspective, is it possible that Pilate would have retreated from what God intended for him to do? One of the points, again, that we discussed in our small group this last week is that according to the prophecy of Isaiah 53, the Messiah would remain silent before his tormentors. So I want you to see in in, uh, Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8, where it says just that, of Messiah. This is, again, the prophecy of Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not what? Open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. That was what was intended for Messiah. Yet we read in the four Gospels, the accounts of the trial, there are moments when Jesus did open his mouth. There are other times when he did not speak. So in a very literal sense, it may appear that Jesus did not fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 53 for Messiah. But in the context of God's sovereign purposes for his son, Jesus did fulfill the prophecy in that he did not open his mouth in any way that would prevent the shearers from slaughtering or shearing him. He would not open his mouth so as to alter in any way that which he must endure for the sake of, as Isaiah 53 says, bearing our sins, bearing the sins of many and interceding for the transgressors. He would do nothing that would interfere with the redemptive plan that God had given him to fulfill. And if Jesus were to answer Pilate on his heavenly existence, it may well stir enough or sufficient fear to keep Pilate from authorizing the crucifixion that Jesus Christ must endure for our redemption. And as noted before, nothing was going to deter Christ from his mission. His face was set like flint. Pilate was clearly frustrated by the silence of Jesus on this subject, so he reminds Jesus that he has the authority to release him, he has the authority to crucify him, to which Jesus now does open his mouth and speak in verse 11. 
you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now, a couple of things come from that statement. Number one, the greatest power on the face of the earth is still under the sovereign rule of God, and Rome was probably that greatest power, at least at that moment. But neither Pilate or Caesar himself would have understood or even confessed that God presided over, that providence was over even their authority. So Jesus is teaching Pilate some basic theology when it comes to the power and authority of human rulers. They all exist under the greater rule of God, and he is the one who grants them authority to govern on the earth. Paul wrote of this to the church in Rome when in Romans 13, verse 1, he said, every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, you talk to most kings or presidents today, and they think they're the authority. But the word of God says no, God only granted them authority, and they only exist under the greater providence of God. And even concerning the events of the cross, Peter, in his first sermon there in Jerusalem, under the the ministry of the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 2, he said this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God determined it. What Pilate was then doing to Jesus at that moment, God had predetermined that plan. It came by the foreknowledge of God. But he said, you, Jews, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, put him to death. And Pilate was one of those godless men that had Jesus nailed to a cross, putting him to death. But Jesus is saying, you're not the authority, Pilate. You're not in charge here. The Holy Spirit pressed Peter to add that all that took place by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God would accomplish our redemption. Pilate had authority, but Jesus let him know that this authority came from God above, and this little cowardly human ruler was subject to the determinations of God. And apart from God, Pilate, along with all other rulers, have no authority. God in no way orchestrated the sins of Pilate or of the Sanhedrin. Those sins came from depraved hearts. But in some mysterious sense, God had Pilate in his ruling place at just the right time so that his sinful cowardice would play a part in the plan of redemption. God is sovereign over all. A second truth comes from the statement of Christ in verse 11. And that is that there are degrees of sin in the eyes of God. And the Jews had committed a greater sin than even Pilate. Pilate was guilty before God. And as great as that sin was, it was a lesser sin than was committed by Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Pilate acted cowardly 
making immoral decisions. He violated the justice of God. He selfishly looked to himself in holding his judicial office at the expense of doing what is right. He rejected the truth of Christ. We saw that in chapter 18. He rejected the truth that Jesus proclaimed. And in the end, he signed the papers that would have an innocent man crucified. But the Jews were guilty of a greater sin because they had the revelation of God found in the Old Testament scriptures. And this included not only the laws of Moses that they were to be operating by, but it included the prophecy of Messiah that they should have known. And the Jewish rulers had the truth of God. They knew the truth of God. And they murdered God's son out of hatred for that son. And in addition, it was the Sanhedrin that was given the evidences of the miraculous powers of Christ, even having witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And again, we saw that from back in chapter 11. Compared to Pilate's selfishness and cowardice, the Jews had uh, committed a far greater sin. And the greater sin, according to Jesus, rested on the ones who handed Jesus over to Pilate. In other words, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Annas and Judas also played a part in this, in the betrayal of God's Messiah. Now again, taking a moment for you and I to behold the man, to look at Christ, we recognize the greatest of sins here. This lets us know from the words of Jesus himself that there are degrees of sin, some greater than others. And we also know from the Gospels, if you look at, for instance, Mark chapter 12, verse 38 through verse 40, they're not only greater sins, but they're greater punishments that go along with those greater sins. And while we witness many great sins in our day, Jesus makes an interesting distinction here. Rulers and kings are given great authority by God, and we can watch them even today and knowing they're committing great offenses against God. And they're going to be judged for the rejection of the truth of Christ. They'll be judged for rejecting the laws of Christ. But greater than the sins of our national leaders are the sins of religious men who are closest to the truth of God and yet lead people away from Christ, lead people away from rejecting his voice. I believe this is on the Back of your bullet, no, this is one that we can perhaps bring up on the screen from James Boyce. He's making a distinction between the sins of Pilate and the sins of the Jewish rulers from Christ's comment here. Taken together, Boyce writes, the parts of the comparison teach us that the greatest danger lies not with the state, but with those who are closest to spiritual things. Others may sin out of ignorance or neglect or cowardice, as Pilate, But religious people are inclined to sin out of arrogance or pride or actual hatred of God and God's truth, even when they think they are most moral. What this should be teaching us is that we need to be very careful with how we exercise authority in spiritual matters. Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, the spiritual authority, the spiritual leaders there in Israel. They were the religious rulers. The people looked up to them. They were, they were leading the people, and the people would follow them. And how they exercised that authority had led many away from Jesus Christ. That sin was far greater than what Pilate or Herod would do. 
but we will also have spiritual influence in our realm as well, over our children, in our homes. We may teach in the Sunday school classroom or have positions of ministry in the church. We may be counseling other believers in their spiritual struggles. What we must give attention to is that we're always trying to lead people to Christ and to his word and not away from. Those who have the truth of God and have the ability to influence others with that truth as we do we'll want to be very careful that we always lead others closer to the Son, closer to his word. We never want to be found using our religion or the laws of Christ to bring spiritual ruin to others. I just have a quote here. It won't come up on the board. I added this at the last minute, but this came out of one of my commentaries that was writing on this passage, John 19, verse 11. His name is Richard Phillips, the author of this commentary. And honestly, it brings a little bit of condemnation against pastors as well. He writes, Since ultimate authority resides with God, and since the Jews possessed God's word and had received compelling proofs of Jesus' authenticity as Messiah, they'd seen his miracles. Their guilt in handing him over for death was more severe than even Pilate's sins. Pastors and other church leaders who use their sacred offices to deny or violate God's word likewise commit sins that are particularly grievous and offensive to God, as do parents who use the Bible to harm their children or husbands who use biblical authority to abuse their wives. And I know some of you here today have experienced that. Brothers and sisters, how careful we need to be with the authority of God's truth that he's entrusted to us. Always be found, lead people closer to Christ, closer to his word. We can become very moral and use it in very dangerous ways. And those sins grieve our Heavenly Father more than the sins of the unsaved world around us. We must not limit this influence to our words alone because how we live our lives, how we practice what we approve of should reflect to others the truth about Jesus Christ. Our spiritual influence and even our religious morals can be used in a way that reflects poorly on Christ where our own personal motives may be concerned. For the believer, we can be thankful that our sins are forgiven. And at the same time, how careful we need to be with the things of God that we're always directing one another closer to Christ and closer to his word. Father, thank you for the testimony of your son. Not only the verbal testimony that we find written in your word, but Father, what he was willing to endure for us. Bearing our sins, bearing the shame, taking the abuse and the mockery of men and bringing that together on the sacrifice that he made on the cross for our well-being, for our healing, that our sins might be forgiven and that we might be taken from being sons of wrath against you to adopt it into your family as sons of the living God. We thank you and we praise you for our redemption and for our our wonderful Savior, our Redeemer in Christ, we pray. Amen.